0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. And Happy Easter, everyone, all around the globe. This is our Easter show, which is going to obviously be a bit expanded. I I think if you wanted to term what we're going to talk about this evening or this morning, um, it's going to be the concept of Resurrection, coming back, renewal, all those springy things that uh, are anchored in our ancient mythologies that are actually a part of our lives, even though we uh, we don't notice them most of the time, and are certainly on the forefront of many people's minds right now, because desperately everyone wants in this crisis to, you know, reopen, to resurrect the uh, national social fabric, uh, heck, the international social fabric. And the questions, of course, arising around this pandemic is, how and when is it safe to do so? I mean, regardless of your position on what's behind this, and I know there's a huge number of theories out there floating around. The Internet has amplified people enormously and given voice to all kinds of, kind of, you know, very extreme Uh, Ideas, I like evidence. Oh, I love testable evidence. Be that as it may, we are getting reports now which may feed directly into the conversation going on in New York and California and the rest of the country, to say nothing, of course, of Washington. When will it be possible and when will it be safely possible to begin to reopen the economy and for people to physically get back together? And without going into all the controversies swirling around testing and, you know, political agendas and all this, um, I want to direct you to a news item coming to us uh, this evening from um, South Korea. If you remember, and what you're going to want to do is go to The Other Side of Midnight uh, Radio with Pictures, and I'll tell you how to get there. You go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner. There at the top, the one with the remarkable comparison of the image on the Shroud of Turin, and an artistic uh, concept of what uh, Christ looked like. Um, we actually had a reaction at the bottom of the page, I believe, from someone who said, well, that can't be Christ because he had short hair. I'm kind of wondering, and I want to ask that person if they're listening, how do you know that? Anyway, um, we're going to be talking about resurrection and... The idea of reopening society. I mean, we have never lived through a time in history when all of the planet was essentially closed down. Ninety-five percent of Americans, according to a number of inputs, are doing what they need to do right now, and they're staying home. Um, The other five percent could be a problem because, as with those crowded beaches in Florida several weeks ago, There's no better way to spread a virus in a population than to have people who are asymptomatic, who show no signs that they have anything going on, but to have them mingle with crowds and come, you know, within social distance, physical distance. And until we get a handle on that, uh, all the other things are are very problematic. Well, this news story coming from um, South Korea, where, remember, right after China, South Korea had the next biggest number of cases. They jumped on it right away. Within a week, they had a very good test, which appeared to work most of the time. Again, with science, as we're learning every day, this is an imperfect science. We're learning brand new things about how this virus operates in the human body, how it causes incredible illness and fatalities in some people, And other people apparently can walk around carrying the virus and they show no symptoms at all, which is a really remarkable medical um, uh, statement to be able to make. And I'm going to be asking our guests uh, this evening to kind of delve more into that because frankly, epidemiology is not one of those things that I ever really studied in depth. So uh, this is a time for learning. But the thing that we're all learning is that even the best research can get turned on its head with further research. The hope has been, as with previous epidemics and, and uh, outbreaks of this nature, that once you get the disease, once you have successfully fought off the disease, your body, your bloodstream, will carry antibodies. That if you're exposed to the disease again, they will voraciously go out and gobble up the invaders and you won't get sick. The way you figure that out is, A, you look for antibodies in the blood. That's an antibody test, which is tried and true and very simple and uh, has worked, you know, throughout the last several decades very, very well. And the other way is that you see if when p- patients are re-exposed to the the original um, illness, the original disease, that they don't become reinfected. In Korea, as of, and remember, this is a very fast-moving story, so this could be Again, obviated in the next twenty four hours as new data comes in, but something like ninety one of South Korean patients who were certified with two tests within uh, twenty four hours of each other that both said that they had gotten over the disease and they were no longer uh, carriers of the of the virus. they're now testing positive again. Now we don't know again, there is so much uncertainty. Everything every expert or every person in a position of authority or every guy on the radio is saying must be taken with a grain of salt because we're living <clears throat> and moving in very uncertain territory, incredibly uncertain. I mean, for most people who think that when a scientist says something, that's, you know, kind of like God speaking, not scientists are just people. Research is just a human activity, it has enormous. Brackets for errors, certainly at the beginning of a totally unexpected event for which nobody uh, is prepared, certainly uh, biologically in terms of immunity. Anyway, the South Koreans have announced as of a couple days ago that 91 patients certified free of the virus, well enough to go home, resume their normal uh, lives, have now been tested and they have the virus again. They don't have symptoms. But they're carrying the live virus. What does this mean? Does this mean that this epidemiology of illness and then recovery and the antibodies is not true in the case of this particular virus? Well, I don't know. So I'm going to ask uh, our resident medical expert in a few minutes here, and we'll we'll hopefully find out more. Item number two. Again, what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's uh, banner for Sunday Easter. Happy Easter, everyone! That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you will see um, two little links which say fast links to items for me and for Doctor Silverman. Click on Richard; that's mine. Go down to number two. I've, I've you know, discussed this a couple of times in the last uh, week or two. Doctors are rethinking a very important part of this problem in terms of treatment, the ventilators, and we've discussed this at length, certainly on last night's show, are the ventilators that we're using, that the medical community is using, to attempt to desperately save the most critical COVID-19 patients, are they in fact being used the wrong way? Are they in fact the wrong technology? You're going to want to look carefully uh, at this article because it goes through in some depth the fact that um, uh, doctors in hospitals all over the country are now looking at the data and the fact that most of the time when they have to put a patient with covid on a ventilator that's the end of the story the patient never comes off the ventilator they die i mean this is horrible they're now beginning to wonder if the ventilator themselves by basically you know pushing air into the lungs, like blowing up a tire, is the wrong treatment for providing the patient oxygen at a time when their lungs are being ravaged at the cellular level by the virus and your immune system counterattack which causes intense inflammation. So there's been a, a kind of a different approach using corticosteroids and and some other drugs to try to reduce the inflammation. Uh, They're looking at oxygen perfusion techniques that do not involve high pressure. And I know this because, again, the way we operate here is that I get a piece of information then I try to find corollary information. Well, we have a doctor, a source, inside perhaps the most beleaguered hospital on the planet right now, the Elmhurst Hospital there in Queens, in New York, and she is reporting that there has been intense discussion among their medical staff and they're switching from ventilator procedures to um, medical procedures involving certain drugs, certain anti-inflammatories, and they're having very significant success. So again, this goes back to nobody knows, and I'm including doctors in this, nobody knows when they're confronted with a totally unknown situation what to do. Everyone tries from their best previous experience. But if it truly is a novel virus, and I use that term at many different levels, then the fact that early patients may have suffered inadvertently because they're on the wrong treatment protocol, i.e. ventilators that are doing more damage than good. Again, we're watching a process unfolding irregardless, as my grandmother would have said someday, uh, to the actual cause of how this pandemic has broken out all around the world. Item number three, remember how we did a show you know a week or so ago about the positive aspects, the the kind of the silver lining, the the good news behind the horrible news? Well, here's an item. number three China, the Chinese government, has now officially reclassified dogs and cats, as pets, not livestock, not to be sold at these so-called wet markets or sold in supermarkets or sold as you know household meats to be taken home and consumed. This is a stunning, important breakthrough. And animal rights organizations around the world are lauding the Chinese. Obviously, this has to be followed up to make sure that the... Um, New laws are enacted, are pursued, are enforced, but this is one of those rays of light behind the dark clouds because, of course, we all know that uh, in many, many other parts of the world, most of the world, uh, dogs and cats are considered members of your extended family. And so this is an extraordinary positive step and only one of many we're going to be citing in the uh, days and weeks to come. Item number four. Now, I talked about this last night with Chandra Vikrama Singh, who is probably the world's foremost uh, exobiologist. He has been doing work in this field for decades, pioneering stunning work, which if you missed last night's show, you're going to want to join Club 19.5 because you're going to want to listen to this maybe a couple of times. This is really, really critical. A, because we discussed an alternative model again backed up by real scientific data, including data from collaborators with Dr. Rick Singh from inside China regarding where this outbreak first occurred in, in Wuhan, and some very interesting extraterrestrial information that is supporting the idea that this virus, this pandemic, this scourge, has not been released on the human race from anybody down here on the planet. But in fact, it could have come from outer space. And there's decades of research that Dr. wickramasinghe and his colleagues have been pursuing, including initial telescopic studies and then ending up with actual samples of, of uh, bacteria and viruses from uh, above the Earth's atmosphere, from spacecraft, from high-altitude balloons. And most intriguingly, and he co-authored a paper with a Russian scientist, who was in charge of this investigation many, many uh, months ago uh, in, the, in, in, in Russia, um, that they were able to analyze swabs taken of the exterior of the International Space Station, and they found all kinds of intriguing and extraordinary microorganisms, including algae. And, of course, the question is, this thing is orbiting the Earth 250 miles up. How the heck did anything from Earth Get up through space beyond the atmosphere, where there's no wind, <clears throat> where you have sleeting solar radiations and you know very uh, harsh ultraviolets, etc., etc. How did these <clears throat> microorganisms get from the planet to the surface of the space station to be swabbed and then brought inside and analyzed uh, to turn out essentially to be life forms that uh, no one could possibly have expected? in the uh, zero uh, atmosphere and cold and heat of outer space. Well, the conventional scientists looking at this data are basically saying, ah, oh, it's got to be contamination from the earth. There must be air currents, etc., etc., etc." cetera, et cetera. Whereas Dr. Wickramasinghe's data, going back again, as I said, decades, says very forthrightly that in fact this could be another example of of collection of microorganisms already in space, in the solar system, orbiting the sun and, among other things, the effluvia from comets, from the dust and the uh, other you know, fine particles being released as comets vaporize in the heat of the sun and the earth crosses their dust-filled orbits. Again, this is a model that the coronavirus did not come to us from some lab, some you know, or some bat or pangolin down here, but in fact is part of a regular or semi-regular series of epidemics that arise not from terrestrial sources, but from a new influx of their origination point, which is these interplanetary clouds of dust particles and microorganisms floating through the solar system. I mean, again, this is so stunning And the data is so overwhelming when you look at what Dr. Vikramasinghe has presented, but it's been ignored. In fact, it has been very, very systematically downplayed and poo-pooed and uh, relegated to the dustbin of history, in some minds, by mainstream academia for reasons that are not all that clear. Because if, in fact, we've closed down the world because this thing came to us from outer space, wouldn't it behoove world governments to, in fact, um, uh, take a really hard look, maybe set up international committees, maybe send missions into orbit to actually look for this kind of, of signature and you know, develop protocols, if it happens again, to safeguard against it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, that's all of the things that we discussed last night. Now, the thing which was a surprise, which was a very, very elegant surprise to me, is that when I brought up item number four, that the Curiosity rover, a la NASA, is reporting a new mystery on Mars, companioning with the rising and falling seasonal measurements of methane, which, as most of you probably know, is an indicator of biology here on Earth. Most of the methane on Earth comes from um, uh, biology, from microorganisms, from, yes, cows. That's not an urban legend. That's that's real. Cows, you know, when they do their thing, they release a lot of methane all over the planet. It goes away. It's broken up by sunlight, by ultraviolet. So it has a half-life, something like, you know, a couple of hundred years. Well, even worse conditions exist for naked methane, if I can use that term, on Mars. Um, But for some reason, methane on Mars is hanging around and it's rising and falling in a seasonal cycle with the Martian spring and summer and winter. That, of course, would be an indicator on Earth of the magic B-word, biology. Well, they got a new mystery, and that's what we're talking about in the NASA press release in item number four, because there is now a rising and falling measured curve from the instruments in Curiosity, the SAM instrument in particular, uh, of oxygen levels. Very small oxygen levels in the overwhelmingly CO2 atmosphere of Mars. They're rising and falling, and their rising and falling is in synchronization with the methane. So I, I really was very, um, how should I say, conservative last night when I kind of sprung this uh, data on Dr. Rick Rama Singh, and I said, "Well, what do you think is causing this?" And I was so so, uh, you know, gratified that his instant answer was, well, it's got to be biology. There's living things on Mars. So what I'm here tonight on, on basically, you know, Easter Eve to tell you is that NASA has found evidence strongly supporting the idea of current microbial life on Mars, and they don't know how to tell us. And we talked about this extensively in last night's show, so I won't reiterate it. But go and read that press release and see if before you listen to The Chandra Show, you can pick out the key words in the NASA release, which, again, in the Emily Dickinson fashion of tell all the truth, but tell it slant, NASA in this is being extraordinarily Emily Dickinson. And maybe the most gratifying part of my conversation with... uh, with Dr. Whitmerama Singh last night was when I mentioned Emily Dickinson and made the comparison, he said, ah, yes, of course. So he knows about Dickinson and her approach to life and metaphysics and reality, and he agrees NASA is telling us the truth, but they're telling it between the lines. Okay, in a similar vein, as all this is going down, you know, the world is closing down because of virus, people are panicked, people are uncertain as to what to do, who to trust, who to listen to, what authority figures to, to follow or not follow. Um, the president, our president, quietly signed another executive order, opening up the moon to both government and private enterprise, I'd use that term advisedly, mining. Let me say that again. President Trump has now opened up the moon legally in the United States to mining by corporations and government agencies, which, of course, flies right in the face of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And we discussed a bit of that last night with Chandra. We'll be discussing this on, on future programs as these plans become more solidified and are put out there in the public. But this, what this really means to me given that there's no reason why you would mine something on the moon. I know the helium-3 discussion up and down, back and forth. I'll just remind everybody that there are no helium-3 nuclear fusion reactors anywhere on Earth or anywhere actually planned in terms of engineering for the next 50 or so years. So that's just a canard. What could the president really be by mining the moon? Could it possibly be the artificial artifacts, the remnants of an ancient civilization that we've found in the NASA data and other data sets like the Chinese and the Japanese, etc., that are literally now found all over the moon in those images, those data sets? As we say with great vigor, stay tuned. Finally, this May, in the next few weeks, we're going to be regaled, so astronomers have told us, with a bright comet, ATLAS, which is an acronym for the observatory in Hawaii, the NASA observatory which uh, actually first spotted this thing about a year ago. The predictions now for it being one of the most spectacular comets of the uh, 21st century so far may not come to pass after all. It appears to be disintegrating. And I just thought it was kind of interesting that in an era where, according to the Wickramasinghe Singh model, and data sets. The coronavirus could indeed have come as the detritus of a comet crossing Earth's orbital path. The idea that we may have a spectacular comet zipping through the inner solar system in the next few weeks to be visible, uh, certainly in the northern hemisphere, while everyone is locked down, uh, somewhat of a misnomer, uh, is an intriguing coincidence. Well, there now is some evidence that may be A comet atlas is not going to perform, as most comets recently have not done as advertised, and so we're going to be keeping an eye on this. We'll follow it in the coming weeks. We'll give you updates, and if in fact it is going to become visible after all, we will give you coordinates and instructions for where to look, so that you can be um, as awed as I am always awed by looking at the uh, objects streaming around the sun in the solar system through a telescope, or even. With the Naked Eye. With that said, I want to introduce our guest. This is going to be a really intriguing conversation because Dr. Andrew Silverman is a leading scientific expert on analysis of the Shroud of Turin. He's also a medical doctor with a background in physics. For over 30 years, Dr. Silverman has been conducting research on the mind-matter continuum, near-death experiences, and the Shroud. He's presented his findings in peer-reviewed scientific papers and international scientific conferences. He was one of three panelists for the discussion on the nature of consciousness at the 33rd Annual Conference of the Society for Scientific Exploration. Dr. Silverman lives in Britain and is with us this evening all across the pond. Dr. Silverman, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So where should we dive in? Okay, let us let let me move on because you've written a really remarkable book and we're going to be dipping in and out of that book um, at some length. Let me back up on a screen here. I don't know who could be calling me in the, in the middle of the night here on the show because they know the hours and they know that we shouldn't be doing that. But you have written a very intriguing book called A Burst of Conscious Light. What, what was the background to that? I mean, you're a medical doctor, you're trained as a physicist. When did you get intrigued with the idea of consciousness
1: well you see um, i've always been fascinated by consciousness but the the start of me writing the book was to do with my uh, interest in the in the turin shroud and the the image upon it and um, i when i was only just a teenager i saw a uh, award-winning documentary by uh, someone called david Rolfe called the the silent witness which was about the 1978 uh, in collaborative scientific study on the shroud that was done by uh, many people from uh, from NASA, from Jet Propulsion Laboratory, from Los Alamos, uh, expert physicists who were allowed a lot of time to, to look at the shroud and study it in many scientific ways. And it was, many of them went there thinking that they were going to uh, sort of, See the brushstrokes as well they go home because <laughs> they assumed that this must be just like many other, in quotes, religious relics. But um, they found that actually this wasn't something that that could be accounted for as having been done by an artist or a hoaxer. In fact, they couldn't account for how anyone would be able to do that, even with twentieth or 20, now with twenty first century technology. No one can account for how such an image could have been fabricated. And the only consistent explanation that they came up with with how the image could have been formed was that it was a short, intense burst of radiant energy that came from the dead body of the man who had been wrapped in the shroud. And so what fascinated me was if this... If this is what happened, then how would, did such a thing happen? And with all the evidence pointing to it having been the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who was the man who was wrapped in the shroud, I just, you know, wondered: is there some correlation here that that might be related to, you know, what he taught and how he lived? That might show us how such a thing was was possible for a human being. And I should say right from the outset that I don't come at this from a from a religious Position, in fact, you know, I wasn't brought up as a Christian, or uh, I, I'm not part of any uh, denomination. But I was just fascinated looking at it rationally, how such a thing would be possible, and it, and it did occur to me, as it may have done to others, that you know, to understand such a thing, we we need to look deeper into the nature of what material reality and consciousness, and how the two might be related to understand how such a phenomenon could have occurred. Perfect.
0: Well, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. That was the perfect setup for the next uh, two and a half hours of the other side of midnight. My guest is Dr. Andrew Silverman, medical doctor, physicist, and he began looking at the idea of are we more than just physical 3D objects in terms of consciousness by way of an analysis of the infamous Shroud of Turin. Is it possible, is it possible indeed, whoops, whoops, (laughs) ha sorry about that, folks, is it possible that in fact there is a remarkable connection between these two ideas, these two realities? Stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Happy Easter, everyone.
1: filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. Andrew Silverman, coming to us from England. He's a medical doctor. He's a physicist. And he got into this entire discussion by way of the analysis of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, Dr. Silverman, you said something very interesting. You said that this team put together, what, back in the 1970s? In the Mm. 70s that they went into this kind of expecting to find a hoax with brushstrokes and all that, maybe done by uh, da Vinci is one theory that I've heard, and they were kind of baffled by the fact that when you look microscopically at the fibers of the linen of the shroud, there are no brushstrokes to be seen. Can you kind of amplify on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I doubt they would have uh, been suspecting uh by da Vinci because the history of the 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 shroud is you know from way before da Vinci was born but but um yes so basically if you if you start if you look at the shroud uh on a a magnified view uh photo micrographs of the of the shroud you can see that um basically there are different features that you can see on the shroud there's the there's the blood stains on there there's some Water marks on there, and also there's some burn marks on there. But also there's the the body image of of a man. Now, if you look at the at the blood stains under the a photomicrograph, and sort of uh, through a, a microscope that takes a photograph, um, you see, as you would expect, that the blood has has soaked through into the into the cloth, and there are fibers matted together. But if no, you wait, wait, wait. The...
0: Uh, you you Sorry. say blood stains. Do we know now that they are bloodstains from this analysis?
1: that's right uh the the study that was that was done back in back in 1978 by the the scientists at the time that looked chemically at the at the stains and their and their constituency and and did find that they they it is actually blood yes um and then uh and as you would expect you see that the fibers there are matted together because the blood has soaked through into the cloth but where the actual image of the body is It's only on the outermost surface fibrils where one fibril goes underneath another. It's only on the surface of that so that it's not on the bit where it goes, the part where it goes underneath. Oh, so
0: where the fibre is in the shadow, there is no image, but where it's exposed on the surface, there is an
1: image. The image and the thickness of the image is only 200 nanometers, which is one five thousandth of a millimeter in <laughs> thickness. And when you study it chemically, it doesn't consist of anything that's been added to the cloth. It's not paint or pigment or or anything that's been added. What it is, is a, a chemical change that's occurred uh, called oxidation and dehydration, which turns into a kind of sepia yellow hue, which is... Quite similar to what happens to to paper when it's exposed to sunlight. You know how it turns uh, slightly slightly yellow. Is
0: this a heat process or a photochemical process?
1: Well, uh, it, it appears that the that some people may have, ta- have taken the clue of the fact that it's similar to what happens from sunlight because it's actually uh, and it may have been caused by a ultraviolet light now mm. you see there was a uh, but not sunlight there was a there's been a lot of study on this in the atomic uh, energy institute in in italy in frascati by several uh, eminent researchers uh, headed by dr paolo di lazzaro who is a, a physicist there and uh, what What they found is that the only way that they've been able to make similar changes to a a linen cloth microscopically is by very short, intense burst of radiation from an ultraviolet laser. Oh,
0: my gosh, that intensity.
1: Yes. That must be
0: like thousands of watts per square inch or per square centimeter.
1: Well, what they they calculated is that uh, if the whole image formed in that way, yes, it would have been thousands of, of billions of, of watts of, of power um, that would have done this which isn't possible even with today's technology. Now just to be to uh, And hang to on hang on about, we're,
0: we're talking sorry. about a cloth that measures uh, you know what 14 feet wrapped above the, the front and the back of this body and yes. the idea is that if it was Christ if it was supernatural if it was beyond current physics something happened to that body wrapped in that cloth and it It issued an intense burst of energy, of light, of ultraviolet, and that caused the image, the 3D image, to singe or to affect the
1: top linen fibers pointing toward the body, right? Well, um... Yes, I would say that it, it does. There is evidence that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was the man who was wrapped in the shroud. Actually, will come. I'm sure we'll come to this later. But I'm not using the word supernatural uh, because, you see, I believe what he was demonstrating is something that is completely, completely natural, mm. in the sense that. I'm, I'm, see, I'm kind of glad you made that distinction because I, I
0: equally hate the term paranormal. Because I think if you have scientific evidence for things that are quote paranormal, they become normal because they're part of an inclusive, expanding realm of physics that we just don't know
1: at the moment. Yes, well, I mean the the aim of uh, aim of the book is, is to is to to show how that connection might work between between mind and matter, or at least to give clues in the direction of. of that's worth looking to try to to understand that phenomenon. You see, for example, uh, parapsychology researchers will do lots of experiments to see whether they can detect any evidence of extrasensory perception or mind over matter, which are the two two sides of the coin, if you like, of, mm-hmm. of the so-called paranormal. But what I, I think needs best stating, and, and this is one of the points that I made in the the uh, the Society for Scientific Exploration conference that you alluded to at the at the start in the in the introduction, is that actually all perception is extrasensory because senses don't perceive. A camera is pretty much like an eye. The processing unit is a bit like a brain in the camera, but the camera doesn't see what it's looking at. People say that <laughs> that we have consciousness because we have self-awareness because the brain is processing information about itself. But the camera is processing information about itself if it videos its reflection. Does that mean it's aware? Does that mean it's murder if you switch the camera off? Yeah, so all perception is extrasensory, and if there is such a thing as free will, and in the book I demonstrate evidence of why there is such a thing as free will, well, that's mind over matter. So, you see, extrasensory perception and mind over matter aren't just real, but they are the fundamental nature of our very existence in every single moment of our existence mm. and experience is a testament to both of them.
0: Interesting point. So, very interesting. Mm. Okay, back to the shroud. So the amount of energy required to affect these fibers is off-scale.
1: Well... Not the energy, the power. I have to make a okay, distinction okay. here yeah, between you're, power you're right, and energy. Right. Yeah, right, you see, right. power is the rate of transfer exactly, yeah, of yeah. energy. So it all happened very quickly. But if it had been a huge amount of energy, there'd be no cloth left. There'd be <laughs> well, no of course, yes. tomb left, probably. Um, it's, so it's, it's just a very rapid transfer of energy rather than a huge amount of energy that defines the fact that large amounts of power are involved.
0: Hmm. Okay, so that's their kind of scientific starting point that the shroud is not a simple you know painted cloth how did How did you personally get involved in the in the analysis because of course those studies were done decades ago, and actually, I believe I had a guest on a couple of years ago who was a member of the original team, but mm-hmm. you know the fact that scientific people all over the world were looking at these results, what draw drew you in as a doctor? And a
1: and physicist. Well, um, I've, I've studied physics. I'm not actually working as a physicist. But um, so the um, what drew me in, as I say, was. Um, was looking at the, the documentary about the research that had done, been done by the STERP team, by the Shroud of Turin mm-hmm. Research Project called the, the Silent Witness. And then uh, at that time, I was I was just still at school. Um, um, but then I uh, when I was a medical student, I, uh, I was studying uh, a science degree as part of my uh, as an extra course within my medical degree. And at that time was when the carbon dating was reported in in the journal nature and i used to read nature every week and so i saw this when it came out and i saw i was fascinated by uh, a table of of data that was in the original nature article which to to any anyone looking at this with the with the modicum of of mathematical knowledge shows that actually the three labs that dated this tiny bit of cloth portion of the cloth from the shroud Came out with different, statistically different answers, Uh, and this wasn't really addressed by the by the report. And then I I later heard that there were was some groundbreaking research by a a couple in the states, uh, Sue Benford and Joe Marino, who showed that the the corner of the cloth that the that the sample was taken from for the carbon dating had actually been repaired much much later with much more recent material and in fact the the majority of the material that was dated was not part of the original shroud it was added later which is which is what caused the the apparent medieval date okay let me, also, let me let
0: me stop you there because I'm a conspiracy uh, a conspiracy I'm a suspicious person yes. If if they were choosing portions of the cloth for the radiocarbon dating Was it just accident that they chose the medieval patches? Was that by political design? Did someone not want real evidence as to the real age of the cloth? I understand these are kind of controversial questions, but that's the first thing that came to mind. How could scientists make such a mistake when it was obvious that the cloth had been repaired?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to make accusations because I always like to think people are innocent unless unless <laughs> proven guilty. I, but I, but definitely, at the at the very least, what it what it shows is a, a level of, of incompetence that uh, hmm. that they didn't the the people who were who were doing the, the arranging the dating didn't really listen to the the experts on the shroud who were the the STIRP team, the Shroud of Turin Research Project that had done the research uh, ten years earlier and didn't didn't take guidance from them about, because if they had, they would probably have sampled more than one part of the class. I would think. That would
0: have... <laughs> I mean, wouldn't yeah, that be cause... just basic science?
1: yes 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 so it wasn't really a very a very scientific um project that in the end the carbon dating mm-hmm. uh, and the the results were not it wasn't they didn't follow protocol they, they communicated during the study although there were supposed to be three independent labs and their actual data themselves don't hold up when you when you look at it because of the the statistical difference between the datings from the different labs Okay, we're going to jump back and forth
0: because, you know, I'm, I have this curiosity bump, and when you say something provocative, I want to ask a question right away. Sure. Um, have there been any updated, upgraded uh, radiocarbon samples that actually measure the rest of the cloth?
1: Well there is a report of of, of one that um, from a uh, that was arranged by uh, a, a scientist from from las Alamos but unfortunately we don't have the full uh, sort of uh, evidence of 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 where it was done and how and so on that we can actually rely on it to be able to to say safely but lots of us have been but that did make it look a lot a lot older but the um many of us in the research the shroud research community have been have been lobbying the the church to allow more scientific research to be done on the on the turin shroud but but so far you know, without any results. Hmm. So, do you think that's because the church wants this to remain in ambiguity?
0: Because remember, they're not into science; they're into, you know, fathering uh, the
1: flock. So, do they want this to remain kind of in limbo? Uh, well, you see, I I wouldn't be able to know really what their what their motivation is. Um, Actually, I, I went to a presentation by who uh, 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 Barberis, who um, is one of the, the people who advises the, the church about the scientific aspects of the, the shroud, Professor Barberis. And, uh, and he was saying, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, when is the carbon dating uh, going to be done again? And uh, I, I just have three answers for the three things <laughs> I have to tell you. Uh, one is... The, the shroud now belongs to the Pope. The second one is, I am not the Pope. And the third one is, I will never be the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really, unless the Vatican authorizes it, there can't be any more um, any more carbon dating on it, unfortunately. But Okay, but hang, on, you, you hang, know, on, hang on, hang
0: on, hang on, hang on. Let me follow up a point. Between the 70s and now, the 21st century, the second, third decade, I guess, of the 21st century, Science, physics, analytical technology for radiocarbon dating has advanced incredibly. I mean, we can now do radiocarbon tests on one fiber, one fiber. You don't have to take a sample. One, you know, fiber of cloth. So why would the Pope, you know, because the buck stops with him, you just said, why would the Pope not want that ambiguity resolved when it would result in zero damage to the shroud as a whole?
1: Yes, um, I, I, I can't answer for, for him, and I don't know what his, what his motivation is. But interestingly... Well, what's the scuttlebutt?
0: Kind of... I mean, you're talking to a bunch of other researchers. You guys obviously talk to each other a lot. You know, mm. we don't need to be politically shy. Um, no. Why do you think that, that that misnomer, that obviously scientifically wrong early conclusion, because they chose to sample only the medieval part of the you know remodeled cloth or repaired cloth... Why do you think the Pope wants that to stand?
1: Maybe he wants it to stand. I don't even know how much attention he pays to the to the shroud at all. See, this is the problem with with speculative. What I wanted to say is that interestingly, one of the people who was in the research team that did the radiocarbon uh, dating from the University of Oxford, he actually now actually heads the radio. Carbon dating lab there, and he went on the record in another documentary uh, that David Rolfe did for the for the BBC of saying that there's so much evidence that that points to a much earlier origin of the shroud than the carbon dating suggests. That we really more research is needed to to give an overall view of that gives us an understanding of what he referred to as this intriguing cloth. So that although he had been in, in part of the Part of the actual carbon dating team, uh, he even he concedes that there's so much evidence now that, that that suggests that that the shroud could actually be much older than that.
0: If I remember correctly, among the things that they did, this team in the 70s, which I believe was spearheaded by some physicists up here in New Mexico at Los Alamos, they 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 took basically scotch tape. And they went over a good portion of the shroud, looking for pollen, looking for dust, looking for you know evidence of where trace evidence of where it had been, you know how it had traveled from wherever it originally was created to to the Vatican, that kind of thing. Um, I would have thought they would have picked up some loose fibers in that process, and those should be carefully stored
1: somewhere. Yes, um, there may be, but you see, the thing is that the the that if there any if there were enough to do a uh, carbon dating on, then there would be whatever it shows. There would be people who say, "What? Well, where is the chain of evidence showing that this actually the provenance that this has actually come from the shroud and hasn't come from someone who want who has a vested interest in saying that that it's either ancient or or modern?" You see, so that's why it really. I think if there is going to be more dating uh, to be done, uh, then it would it would need to come through the uh, auspices of the of the church, allowing more samples to be taken.
0: Hmm. Because if I again remember their protocol, they photographed extensively, overwhelmingly every step of their process. And when they were taking these uh, Scotch tape, I'm using the term Scotch tape. It uh, was a more you know refined tape. But the idea was to. Mylar, I believe it's called. Okay, yeah. they they recorded, like NASA recording where they gathered samples on the moon. They recorded where they took the uh, uh, tape, you know, uh, patches, the uh, adhesion tests. They then stored all of them in labeled vials, that kind of thing. So it would be pretty easy to reconstruct a paper trail, a, a chain of evidence, if you found on those tapes particular linen fibers that were not in the area that was fixed
1: by those medieval nuns sure i mean a lot of the material of course on those tapes was was by by design they were picking up contamination that occurred on the the shroud beforehand after uh more recently for example the the pollen and and so on uh so um again there would still be the the question of of uh, of the provenance and and so on but yeah i th- i think it would probably need uh, even with modern technology it would still need a, a larger sample than than you know one or two uh, fibrils of from the cloth well again the components I'm, of the fiber?
0: I'm i'm very used to dealing with controversial science having dealt with nasa for many many decades if if some enterprising researchers even outside were able to go to the the samples that were carefully stored and do that test with those possibly you know removed loose fibers at the very least it would create such a political controversy that then the pope would have to answer he would have to provide a plausible reason why you couldn't do the same thing now with just a few fibers for a modern accurate you know paper trail test so politically remember it's always always comes down to politics. Yes. You could force the Vatican to do science in the twenty first century like they did it in the uh twentieth. Uh, yes, I, I don't know, possibly Okay, let's let, 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 let's move on. So when you got access to this data, what was your first reaction? I mean, did you did you grow up thinking about the shroud a lot, or I mean you're not a Catholic, or you said you're not religious so why were you so captivated by this anomaly that it really kind of became a, a central focus of your of your interest?
1: Yes, as I say, uh, the interest was how the how the image could have got there when it can't be it can't be made now even with modern technology. How did it? how did it get there then? And then when I, I saw the as a as a student, I saw the back in the late eighties that the carbon dating that they had done didn't didn't really hold water. And then you see I um actually I I started to to write about my uh ideas about the the shroud and originally it was going to be a book about the, the shroud and then I realized that really to do this subject justice to understand how such a phenomenon could have occurred can't be understood i believe in in isolation as i say you have to see it in a broader aspect of trying to understand the nature of what a human being is and to un- to try to understand consciousness and matter and how the how the two might be connected and i studied for example near death experiences which which point to the the fact that the that Consciousness cannot be a product of the, of the brain because the brain stops and consciousness continues and I saw the evidence in, in, in quantum physics as well that led many of the founders of quantum theory and some current quantum researchers including notably uh, eminent professor at the University of Stanford Andre Linder to say that consciousness itself is something fundamental that it's not a product of matter but in fact it could be the other way around that matter is a product of consciousness. Hmm. Okay. Um so
0: we're not discussing miracles, right? We're no, exactly. Dis- we're discussing unknown physics. Can you kind of differentiate that
1: certainly? As I say, um if if you consider the the nature of what people usually define as supernatural, they tend to mean extrasensory perception and mind over matter, but Yet, every time we exercise our, our free will and we make a decision, that is our, our mind influencing matter. Hmm. Now, to, to tie this in, to, understand, to try to understand the nature of, of matter, one ha- also has to understand about, about space and time. Now, the interesting time is fascinating because in the equations of, of physics, there's no such thing as, as a present if you like, as a moment that we call now, and neither is there a, a flow of time or or even, in a way, a, a direction of time, such as we experience as, as conscious beings. For example, eminent uh, professor uh, Roger Penrose said that it's only for consciousness that time needs to flow at all. There's no there's no flow in in the equations of physics which would have the whole of the history of the universe from the Big Bang through to the heat death of the universe could all be on one on one diagram altogether as one as one blob if you like and and so this is what led for example uh, the the person one of the founders of quantum theory Erwin Schrödinger to to say to realise that that mind consciousness is always now that actually it's the the present is actually made real because of our consciousness and therefore time is made consciousness hmm. and then he went on to say that what the mind has created cannot either make the mind or destroy the mind and he drew the conclusion that mind must be eternal that actually there is no beginning or or end to it then tying that into to the I'm trying to understand this physical universe that that we're in which began at the big bang so space and matter have a beginning but consciousness doesn't have a beginning
0: hmm. what
1: aspect what is space space after all is just another word by space of course i don't i don't just mean sort of outer space i mean i mean the room in which things exist so the space around us now the space with with, which we are in is also space that that what actually is that if you if you take it down to its root in an analysis basically space is separation of points okay um oh so so space is geometry with separation geometry can only exist when there's separation Hmm. so before, if you don't have a big bang then you have no separation so you have consciousness you have a, 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 us as beings or being if you like if we have no beginning or end Okay, tell but, what, hold it
0: there we're at the top of the hour I've got to do some things okay. here um, I've got a really I hope pithy question to talk to you about big bangs when we come back my guest okay. this, mor- this morning this evening wherever you are is Dr. Uh, Andrew Silverman we're discussing the uh, Shroud of Turin As a segue into a much larger question, how was it created? Is it a part of physics that is currently unknown? And does that physics ultimately include the idea of consciousness, of us and how many countless other beings in a universe? And uh, we'll expand on that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. shall return. Over and out.